And welcome to For What It's Earth. We've had a little break, but we're back. I'm sure you're absolutely thrilled. We are a nature, environment, climate change, sustainability, all things eco podcast. My name's Emma. I'm Lloyd. And this week we have a guest with us. We have Joe Middleton from the Woodland Trust. He's here to talk to us about trees. We've all seen them, but what are they? Hey, guys. Um, (laughs) Thanks for having me on the show. They're big things. They're big things. They start on the ground and they finish in the sky. There we go. Uh, Job we'll done, Joe. Thanks week. so much yeah. for joining us. That was so wonderful. <laughs> we really, we really start out with the uh, the burning questions. Yeah, we're absolutely delighted. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to be talking about all things. Yeah, thank you. Tree, climate change. You know what the point of trees is, and how useful they are, and how we should be looking after them a little bit better, and all that jazz. I can't think of anyone better suited to talk to us about trees than somebody I made talk to me about trees for about three hours in an ancient woodland recently. So thank you very much. It's a hard life. It was great. I'm a tree enthusiast. I love them. Don't worry. Perfect. But listen, before we get too far into it, we always start each episode with one simple question. Listen, what one good thing have you done this week for the planet? Joe, I'm going to put you on the spot. What have I done this week? Um, so I spent the weekend giving some tomatoes some love. That was my thing. I love tomatoes. I've got a real soft spot for tomatoes, right? And so obviously you can't really grow them in this country that well. But me and a friend of mine um, have a little bit of land and a polytunnel filled with tomato plants that we are hoping that we don't have to go abroad or buy our tomatoes, not literally travel abroad, but go to the supermarkets where they get them. So we've been looking after this row of about 30 tomato plants. I spent much of the day yesterday in a very drippy polytunnel with too many holes in it, (laughs) giving the tomatoes some love, pruning, weeding, um, putting out the little nips in between the two kind of bits to try and get those tomatoes watered. Literally like three hours in this dripping polytunnel, just giving the tomatoes some love so that I can eat them for the rest of the summer and not have to worry about where they've come from. That is a real labour of love, that. Fantastic. Love tomatoes. <laughs> are, are you purely growing tomatoes? Is it is it a real narrow-minded uh, allotment or have you varied out a little bit into other vegetables? <laughs> monoculture of tomatoes no so there's other things not in the polytunnel all sorts of other things in the polytunnel um tomatoes are mine and my friends he's also got some aubergines in there some chilies some peppers some cucumbers but i my knowledge is in its infancy and i have got tomatoes down to a t well that was good nice. that one, wasn't it? Hey, hey. Oh, well, you can come back uh, hey we'll and, edit out that last bit and <laughs> make it sound like you planned it definitely so yeah, um, tomatoes and some other bits and bobs, but I don't know what to do with them. I'm only good with tomatoes. That's fantastic. I think that's a brilliant one good thing. I have regularly used I'm growing XYZ as my what one good things. And like you, I don't know a huge amount about what I'm doing, but it's really satisfying eating something that you've grown you know, on your allotment or in your garden. I had a couple of strawberries today from my uh, hey. my patch. Nice. They're going, and, and a few raspberries. I'm getting an average of four raspberries a day, which is quite a treat i think that's pretty moment. good that's a little like topping for your um cheesecake or something or your yogurt yeah exactly but uh okay lloyd what was your one good thing um i do not have the space unfortunately to be growing anything um so the next like staying on the theme of food wastage i guess and being well not self-sufficient but i'm just gonna say the thing um we <laughs> we've been uh using a subscription box called earth and wheat I don't know if you've heard of that one before. Ooh, no. It's um, It comes, supposedly, it comes directly from bakeries um, and bakers. And it's the it's supposed to be the odd-shaped things that come out the ovens or the surplus breads and things. So we've had uh, crumpets and pancakes sent to us and naan breads and pitters and flatbreads, oh all sorts. Yeah, it's, really it's carb heaven, I want it. It's fantastic. My favourite, of course, are the crumpets. Nice. But uh, it's, it's so good, and it, it tends to change uh, month to month. Uh, some things stay the same, but uh, other things change, and it's always like a little, oh, what what bread have I got this month? That's it's so great. Cool. So it, it comes with a ex- ex- it's just expiry date, but it's usually pretty good. To just whack in the freezer to keep for even longer. Mm. What was it called again? Earth and wheat. Awesome. We will put a link to that in the description. That sounds yeah. really really cool. It sounds so. It's basically like the carb version of Oddbox, where they send you wonky veg. Yes. Nice. It's, it's always quite nice to bring one 
um, that I haven't done before because uh, we've said this before, we do start to run dry on new things. It's quite hard to have a con- like upward trajectory continuously with these. Yeah, well, on that, mine is pretty niche this time and not one that I will do regularly. So, I mean, you, you guys both know um, I kayak quite often on the River Avon and our kayak is inflatable. It's not, it's not like the whole thing is inflatable, but it's got like this kind of inner tube and and an inflatable bottom that kind of sit in like a fabric and plastic exterior and the inner tube recently uh popped <laughs> for lack of a better word and we tried to Which repair I imagine it. it's quite important it's floating yeah, semi-essential when you're in the water. <laughs> it was it was a very frantic dash back to shore yeah. quite a stressful experience but we made it and um, it was one of those things where you lift it out of the water and it just bends into a v shape it does not retain its shape whatsoever and we thought Goodness me, we were quite lucky to get back before we sank. Um, so we tried to repair it, didn't last for very long, and eventually just had to buy a new inner tube. But that meant that we were left with this absolutely massive piece of like industrial plastic. Didn't know what to do with it. Didn't want to put it in landfill. And managed to find this company, which will turn things like your kayak inner tube or your old deck chairs like into bags and random like oh, products so niche but i love it i know how mm. bizarre is that so i've sent it off to live a second life as i don't know a beach bag or something do you know what? i remember awesome. seeing a company down on the harbour side in bristol once that had a stall entirely made from bike tires and inner tubes wallets purses handbags kind of loads of cool st- you know like ipad holders it was all made from yeah recycled rubber it was brilliant so it's cool. amazing what you can do with old stuff i mean um so Bryony, my partner works at the Swansea Environment Centre and they help collect old CDs and DVDs and then they give them to a craftsperson, someone with actual practical skill, and they turn them into things like chopping boards and like work surfaces in the kitchens. It's so cool. Wow. So your copy of um, iRobot? (laughs) That Snow Patrol CD from the (laughs) late 90s. I know what to do with you. Uh, That's the the one you cried to. Well, a lot of people seem to hang them on the um, on the allotment plot to keep the birds away mm. from eating your strawberries as well. That's a good little another second line. Does it work? I don't know, but it, it's pretty kaleidoscope colour and it looks good even <laughs> if it doesn't work. Either there's loads of like birds raving around on the plot at night when no one's looking, or or yeah, or no, it terrifies them and they don't come near. You get to show off your music taste as well. He's busy scratching off the Snow Patrol label before he tastes the allotment. <laughs> Okay, right. We're digressing. I think those were three pretty cool, good things, actually. Like you said, Lloyd, sometimes yeah, we scrape well. the barrel, but I'm, I'm pleased with those. That was a good three. Good job. And then we go back to scraping the barrel next week. <laughs> Absolutely. But before we do that, <laughs> trees. Joe, let's talk about trees. First of all, while well, you've defined... What's your favourite tree? Oh, done. Sorry. All right, fine. Yeah, what's... <laughs> what's my favourite tree? What's your right, favourite tree? Good start. I, do you know what? It used to be the oak... I used to be a big fan of just a proper big gnarly oak. A nice the classic. Oak. Yeah, my oak. But mm. I, uh, I changed my mind about uh, a few years ago. So my my brother had two little girls and one of them he called Rowan. And she is um, a proper little cool dude and uh, is named after the Rowan tree, which is like, it's like, they call it the mountain ash. So basically it's quite a kind of delicate, multi-leafed tree that grows small, thin, and beautifully elegant, whether it's in a wood, in the kind of understory of a wood, because it's not a big canopy tree, or it even grows on its own in the kind of the most like barren, acidic locations on the top of Yorkshire moors or down in the sort of the valleys and Dartmoor and in these windswept crags on these little riversides where nothing else is growing and the sheep are grazing and there's just gorse and bracken and you'll still get these beautiful rowan trees with these amazing green, you know, delicate uh, leaves and then it flowers in springs, it's good for the insects, and it berries in autumn as well, and just this amazing clusters of bright red berries. So it used to be the oak. These days, it's the rowan. That was a much more thorough and interesting answer than I was expecting when I blurted that one out, so thank you. It's all right, I love trees. <laughs> I spend a lot of time thinking <laughs> the, about it. The thing is, as soon as you, like, it's, it's the one question that any expert in anything always gets asked, do you have a favourite? whatever it is their expertise is so they always have really good interesting answers because they've had to think about it it's one of my favorite really simple and stupid questions to ask people 
Except if you get one person, it's like, no, I love them all equally. They're all my babies. Get off the podcast. <laughs> yeah, get off. Come back get when you've chosen fence. one. <laughs> you've got splinters on your bum. <laughs> okay, right. So we've established that Rowan is your favourite, but trees in general, let's, let's zoom this out a bit with a very broad and open-ended question. Why are trees cool? Why are trees cool? Why do they keep us cool, for one? Um, Effortless. You know, nice. Rolled off the tongue. Nice. They, You've done they, this before. Oh, I've done it. <laughs> I try terribly, but um, trees, literally, right, if you invented a tree and someone came along one day and went, I've invented this thing, right, I know we've got a problem with carbon, I know we've got huge amounts of pollution coming to the atmosphere, I know that we've got a biodiversity crisis, I know we've got flooding problems, and, you know, by the end of the conversation, you're weeping into your pint. And then someone goes, okay, but I've invented this thing, right? It's like, it's this, it's this thing, you put it in the ground, it grows naturally, and then it soaks up all the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and gives us the oxygen, literally the stuff we breathe. It shelters us from rain, it slows down rainfall, its roots bind into the soil, slow down and protect you know, our homes, our rivers from flooding. Um, it makes us happy to be around, whether you're hugging it or whether you're just walking in the presence of trees, they give off. Uh, smells, sounds that we uh, uh, in our kind of, you know, inherent in our bodies have evolved to love being around trees. You can make things out of them, your houses, uh, your bows and arrows. If you want to go back in time, you can eat parts of trees, you know, whether you're talking cashew nuts in, in you know, Indonesia or whether you're talking, uh, you know, berries off of a, of a rowan tree. Um, plus, they make, you know, the value of your house better if they're on your street um, they are pretty much all-encompassing everything. And if you said you'd invented it, people would just say, no, nah, don't believe you, mate, sorry, can't do all that. We have them in their millions. They are phenomenal, and we just take them for granted a little bit too much. We don't have enough, which is why you kind of see all these incredible incentives for people to plant trees at the moment. And So, yeah, apart from all that, the air we breathe, the houses we walk on, the streets we live in, and uh, the flooding... They just are good to be around. I think it's in our bones. You know, I don't know whether it's just Britain because I'm British and, and I have been around woods and I loved Robin Hood as a kid. But there's something about them that instinctively you just love, want to touch, sit under, be near, that is, I think, inherent in our bones. Sold? Absolutely. On, I mean, you make <laughs> oh, them sound word. far too good to be true, really. They are, aren't they, really? They are. You know, you couldn't make it up. They are ridiculously too good to be true. And um, yeah, we need a bit more. There's only, so in the UK, there's only 13% woodland cover. So that is the second lowest of any other European country. It's actually not that much. What what would that have been historically? Um, so it's been that for a long time and it was less. So we've got a little bit better over the last couple of hundred years. The first and second world war had a bit of a chop down and then drive to plant them again because we needed them. Um, but apparently since the Magna Carta, it's been roughly about, around about 13 to 15% because we okay. we chop them down for, for hunting, forestry, farming. So for a long time, it's been around about 13. But the difference is that only 2 to 3% is ancient. So our, exi- mm. you know, our, our proper ancient woodlands that have been there continuously for at least 400 years, uh, we've only got 2 or 3%. So... A lot of that is made up by fast-growing conifers, you know, Sitka spruce monoplantations in Scotland or in some of the national parks. So, so that you know really is about three percent. And even some of our ancient woodlands have had conifers planted in. So, it's um it's it's not great. We're getting better, but um you know with all the benefits we know of, I think people have now realised there is a clamber to plant trees, but it's just you know making sure they're in the right tree in the right place. And we have many questions for you on that. But what's the difference then between, in terms of like usefulness for for us, for nature, for biodiversity, between an ancient forest and a more recently planted or, you know, edging on monoculture plantation? Uh, Literally thousands and thousands of species. That is the difference, really. Mm. Um, And also carbon capture. So an ancient and particularly broadleaf woodland it's also holding the soils and the roots are, are, are holding things in place, whether it's uh, carbon, water, or whether it's millions of microscopic insects and millipedes and centipedes and, you know, things that we don't even know exist yet. A teaspoon of soil contains, you know, billions of microorganisms that we don't even understand yet. But the, but the trees themselves, uh, ancient woodland 
you know, it's got relationships. An oak tree can have a thousand symbiotic relationships with insects, animals, plants, fungi, lichens, things that have only evolved on that one particular tree and they can't go anywhere else. Whereas you might get, for example, okay, it's a good one that sits in the middle of the conifer broadleaf is sycamore. So sycamore is an introduced maple species, which might have thousands of aphids on it, but only, you know, a handful of species. So bioabundance can be quite good. And if you plant enough conifer, there'll be, you know, huge amounts of one or two species. But, you know, if you plant a thousand Sitka spruce trees, there's still going to be more biodiversity in one ancient 1,000 year old oak tree. So, I mean, you talked about everywhere, it feels, there are conversations around, we need more trees. And that's a very blanket statement. Like you've provided a million reasons there as to why we do need more trees. But but just looking at it in terms of like climate change and carbon capture and biodiversity loss, you mentioned that, yes, we need more trees, but they need to be in the right place and they need to be the right species. So I think my wider question is, is it possible to plant our way out of trouble or is that is tree planting, when done properly, only going to be a small part of getting ourselves out of this nasty situation that we find ourselves in with climate and ecological crisis? Yeah, it's a difficult one, really, because we've been banging on about the, the, how good trees are for like 30 years now. And now everywhere you look, every article appears and everyone's like tree planting. Every government minister, prime minister, president, you know, is saying, well, we just plant loads of trees. And that's fantastic. You know, on the back of 2019, Extinction Rebellion raised the profile of the ecological catastrophe as well as the climate crisis. And that's what we're very keen to link the two together. It's not just about, um, you know, climate breakdown in terms of uh, carbon emissions. It's also to do with ecological catastrophe. And those things will all combine to send us down the swanee. So Trees are one of the answers and we know we've got to cut down on meat, we've got to recycle more, we've got to put the right land for the right use. And trees will be one of the major parts for many things that, yeah, I've already mentioned. They're not the right, you know, they're not they're not the silver bullet, but they are one of a myriad of things that we can do. And we do have to get back up to 30, you know, at least 25, 30% woodland cover in the UK, let alone every other you know, country across the world. And people are doing some amazing things. There's some awesome projects going on from, you know, whether the Chinese in the Gobi Desert, um, who, you know, people have also made mistakes over the last 50 years to, you know, North America planting and trying to, you know, get trees back into Yellowstone Park and introducing wolves for that that process to, you know, in Britain, the government, every, you know, political party promised a couple of years ago, didn't they? What, are you going to plant a million? Well, we'll plant a billion. Mm. And it was like, okay, where are you going to do that then? Um, so the right tree in the right place, you can, if you plant in the wrong place, you can spoil the argument. You can, you can, you know, pee a lot of people off who are been farming for generations, making a real difference and putting food on our plates. So we're, we're not talking putting a tree absolutely everywhere. If you've got good agricultural land, use it for agriculture. If you've got rubbish agricultural land and you're living off of subsidies, plant trees or just let them grow. You don't have to plant as well. Natural regeneration is the big thing. So you, you guys, you know, you know about the NEP, the big rewilding project down in West I'm Sussex. Beyond desperate to go and... Oh, I weird. don't know anything about that, actually. It's, it's, it's um, a family, for a big family estate, really, that, you know, I get, it must be about 3,000 acres out of which they turned about a third of that over to just nature. They just stopped farming. They realised it was like heavy clay soils. They were trying to run this sort of arable business, planting corn, wheat, all sorts of things on this crop. And for years, the different generations had struggled. They couldn't, you know, it was waterlogged all winter. They couldn't really do much with it. And everything they tried couldn't turn a profit. And they were barely bringing anything, you know, anything home, let alone actually any crop. So they were getting, you know, surviving on government subsidies. So any landowner in the UK until recently just got paid for owning land. So all that meant was the rich landowners took all the money and you didn't have to do anything other than being agricultural production. And then there was another arm that said if you set aside land for environment, for biodiversity, you can get paid extra. So you can offset what you do. So some people have lived off of subsidies for quite a while, um, rightly or wrongly. Some people, you know, need subsidies to help the business because we don't pay enough for our food. That's a whole other discussion. But um, 
these guys just decided, you know, let's let's turn our, you know, 3,000 acre site into one that's for wildlife. We'll take the subsidies, but we'll purely think about nature. So we will take every internal fence out and we will just let it grow. We will let it grow naturally. What should be there, they, you know, they help the ground a little bit, but they introduced wild herbivores. So the original or close as they can do in terms of um, so deer, cattle, and pigs. So the closest you could get to wild boar, the closest you could get to an auric, um, and the closest you could get to wild deer, and let those turn and munch the ground and allow trees to naturally grow where they would and allow other animals to naturally eat and browse amongst it. Because a lot of animals, we used to browse for like 30 to 40% of their diet was leaves. They evolved with leaves, not just monocultures of grass. Mm. So yeah, that, that, that's a really good way of just allowing nature to take over and letting nature decide where you go and what you do and it's a really good book i think it's called is it wilding wilding yeah it's, it's, it's brilliant lloyd i will i'll lend you a copy i yeah please do absolutely loved it but i mean the thing the thing with net there is as you said they have a huge estate and you mentioned like browsing and deer and 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 reintroducing like the right diversity of species in the mm-hmm. right numbers yep. though but it was because Yes, they have deer, but also because they they have you know fenced in a lot of their estate, they they do control numbers so that nothing is going too far in either direction. Because deer are almost the enemy of tree planting in the UK and a lot of other situations. Dare I say that? Yeah, yeah, you, you can say it. You know, let's not be around the bush. Deer munch trees for a living, but then so do rabbits, so do voles. Um, you know, sort of cows and sheep as well, really. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got to, you've got to protect those trees. And natural regeneration works in some circumstances, but you do have to plant. We are also, let's face it, in an ecological catastrophe and climate emergency. Yeah. And that's, you know, most scientists will that. So if you wait for natural regeneration, we might be too late. So we have mm-hmm. to help, uh, help, help the bar along somewhere. And that is through tree planting. But deer want to eat those trees, man. You know, you can surround them with as many thorns as you can but they, they can browse up to about one and a half metres, certain species of deer, and they have no natural predators. So there are different ways you can protect those those trees. And, and that's the big thing at the moment. If we're going to plant a billion trees by 2025, then we need to protect those trees and do it in the right place and also make sure that they survive. Otherwise, we've just wasted the resources of nurseries across the country who have you know, spent a long time nursing those little baby trees. <laughs> so what is the best way to protect these trees? See, this is such a loaded question. Joe Joe knew this question was coming because a couple of weeks ago we spent some time together making a video about tree plantations and how to protect baby trees. So we'll share a link to that in the description if you want an actual <laughs> visual of what we're doing. But Joe, yeah, tell us about some of your work with biodegradable tree guards because this is so cool. It's um yeah, it's it's literally it's taken over my life for the last six months really because. With this, you know, incentive to plant a billion trees, the easiest way to protect a tree sapling from being eaten and help it survive to adulthood is a tree guard. And people have used plastic tree guards now for 30 years. And they are very good uh, and they're very brilliant at, you know, a simple solution to a complex problem. So you put a tree guard around it, it grows up and after 10 years you take it off. And then, you know, until recently you threw it away. And then finally, the organisations and companies that have been making these in their millions put a little bit of their profits back into recycling them. Um, but if you don't, you know, if you don't need one and you can get away with it, the best answer is to not not do it. So there's many, many answers, but we are looking and the project I've been working on is, is biodegradable tree guards. So trying to find an answer to something that doesn't use petroleum, doesn't use petrol plastic that's made in, you know, in oil refineries to actually find and make them out of something that is natural. And uh, when Emma came out, we uh, made a film about the sort of trials I've been doing. So the last couple of years, I've, I've had uh, a good couple of handfuls. So it started off about six different types of biodegradable tree guard. And now we're up to about 14. It's like the, the race is on to find the answer. And quite a lot of manufacturers are going, all right, all right, actually, I saw the news and they will need to plant a billion trees. I'm going to make you a biodegradable alternative. So some are made from cardboard, some are made from... Um, bio, bio, bioplastics, or should we say polylactic acid plant starch, which is basically, you know, corn starch. Um, and the others are made from weird and wonderful sheep's wool, cashew nut shell resin. 
uh, flaxseed. People are looking for the answer now of how to make something that biodegrades naturally in its environment because otherwise you also have to pay someone to go and collect them all up. And if you're planting 50,000 of them on a hillside in Scotland, that's a lot of people spending a lot of time collecting them and doing something with them. So we're looking at natural alternatives to to tree planting and tree guards to protect those trees for the for the first five to maybe 10 years of their life. And are there any benefits to, like, depending on what material you choose, is it possible to choose a material that helps that tree grow, as in provides nutrients within the biodegradable plastic? No, the ground does that already. The soils yeah. provide that perfect condition. But <laughs> the... There, I was about to muscle my way into the market. <laughs> what have you got lined up? What Joe, have you got lined up? You're going to be Bread. a brand ambassador for the For What It's Earth Tree Guard, which is a nutrient leaching tree guard that biodegrades over seven years. Yeah. <laughs> well, so so actually, it's a quite it's quite a good discussion though because you can have things that aren't good for it if they're too dark, too shaded, not enough holes for light and air. It can be too bad. So um, you probably could. Actually, one of them, right, is made from sheep's wool. And apparently deer don't like sheep. They don't tend to mix with sheep. Who knew? They had an aversion to each other. And that the sheep's wool contains, uh, is it lanolin? Mm. Lanolin's in sheep's wool, I think, isn't it? And lanolin. And deer don't like the smell of lanolin, so they won't go near those those particular tree guards. Um, That's yeah. so odd. I know. So um, you've got ones that are made of sheep's wool, but also they're made from cashew nut shell resin. So... At the moment, um, some colleagues of mine within the Woodland Trust were looking and working with UCL in London, the University College of London, uh, to look at those particular products that people are choosing and carrying out full life cycle analysis on them to make sure that we don't substitute one bad ingredient for another. So there's some really good research going on now about the polylactic acids and the plant starches because they are using cornstarch. You've got to grow that somewhere. You've got to keep that crop growing. Um, some you know the cashew nut shell resin is is cashews nut shell so it's a byproduct but it's grown on a tree which obviously offsets the carbon of that you know having to come from countries across halfway across the world so we're looking at all the different pictures making full you know research scientific studies into working out what is the best thing and what has the most sorry the least impact on the environment from you know from cradle to grave wow that sounds like a real um, technological challenge to actually analyse, to be able to conceptualise all that data. Yeah, and to just think of all the different ways from its entire life cycle that, and then compare them to each other. That sounds yeah. like a, a task bigger, bigger than is. I could manage. Me too. That's why I just put them in the ground and then tell you whether <laughs> they're still standing in three years. And we, we get the genius and scientists in, in, in UCL to do, the, to do the real kind of, you know, number crunching. But some of them are made from cardboard and trees. So, you know, if you can use that resource to make into things that, that will grow and is sustainable and will keep coming back, then um, that's hopefully the answer. But yeah, it's got to last five to seven years. So I don't know if you've had any cardboard boxes out in the uh, wind and rain, but they're not great after about three days, let alone three years. As someone who puts them in her compost bin, no, I can't imagine them lasting for seven years. But that's, I mean, that's a really interesting question there, though, isn't it? So if we're trying to replace our use of plastics and we all then suddenly say, hey, listen, let's just use everything made out of wood and you know trees instead... Yes, obviously we're not using plastics, lovely. And, you know, I suppose we're growing more trees to meet that demand, but then we are chopping them down. And basically, I can't decide, is it a good thing or not? Mm, good question. I think everything is unique. It depends on the species of tree, where it's grown, whether it regrows after cutting. So the tree's coppice, most broadleaf trees in, in Britain. So yeah, we've got about, about 40 species of native tree in this country and, and quite a few honorary natives. And the majority of, of broadleaf trees coppice. So if you cut them at the ground, coppicing is, is sawing the ground the, the tree at ground level, it regrows. It's all stored in the roots, all that nutrients, and it can reshoot and regrow. And you essentially have, you know, almost like it's a shrub again for a first few years and it becomes a tree and you can single out a particular stem and that will grow up, grow up. And there's a couple of species of conifer that do that too, um, but not many. So... Trees are sustainable, they do grow back. And if you put that particular bit of uh, timber or wood into something that stores carbon rather than burning it, then that's even better. 
Um, so, you know, timber frame buildings are a great example of a sustainably produced timber that's then gone in and stored for 400 or 500 years in a building, then that's, that's fantastic. But if you're growing a fast-growing conifer from halfway around the world that was just cleared to, you know, they cleared a rainforest to, to grow one species of monoculture tree for, for gum or for, you know, like, like the soya argument, then it's not good. So it all depends on the species of tree, where it was grown and whether it's a sustainable forest management system. How can we tell? As consumers, like, is there, I mean, do we just use the FSC label everywhere? Yeah, FSC is a really good indicator of something that's being sustainably managed. So, so what, what does um, FSC stand for again? Forest, forest Stewardship Council, is oh, God, it? God, I should know this. Forest Stewardship Certification. Ah. Um, so FSC is a, is a, it's a worldwide brand. That any any, any organisation who has a woodland, who manages their woodland and sells a product from it, whether it's uh, a stick for, you know, pea, whether it's charcoal or that's being made for barbecues or whether it's um, timber that's being made for boards. If it's got an FSC stamp on it, then it's from and it's followed basically a set of guidelines and rules and they've been audited by independent people. So we get audited by a soil association to, to, to make sure we're following there's a couple of abbreviations here. Are you ready? We get audited by the soil association to make sure that we're um, U- AQUAS compliant, UK Woodland Assurance Scheme, and then they tell us whether we are FSC um, certified or not. So, um, yeah, soil association do the, do the auditing, basically, and then they check whether you're setting the AQUAS guidelines, UK Woodland Assurance Scheme, and then they give you your FSC certification certificate. And go, Woohoo, we did it. <laughs> and it's hard, man. It's, it really is. It's not an easy thing to do. There's a lot of guidelines and you have to you have to do a lot and have a great big paper trail and show that you are managing your woodlands incredibly well and sustainably. So that's why you got to pay you got to, you got to pay eight pound for a plank of timber in B and Q instead of five pound because it's FSC certified. That is good to know that that's um, a trustworthy mark because I think quite often we like I've started to worry about greenwashing and whether some marks are slapped on there just for the sake of making it look good. Mm. Um, so that that is really reassuring actually to know that we can still trust that mark. Uh, I was going to ask about, in terms of sustainability and regrowing trees, how much, how many regrowths, I suppose, can, can soil support, or is it theoretically like infinite? That's a good question. Um, theoretically, it's got to be infinite because I've got trees growing in some of my woods and I can picture them now. So there's some large leaf lime coppice stools in a wood near Cheltenham that I manage there's some beech pollards there's some you know there's some oak coppice in certain woods I've managed as well around Bristol and they are a thousand years old and they've been coppiced and pollarded you know every between 50 to 100 years so some of them we managed our woods a lot more intensively in the past we had labour in abundance you know we had hundreds of men on very very small wages in the woods, sawing, chopping, charcoaling, and charcoal was used in all the industries. So all those big factories in the you know, industrial revolution were, were, were running on charcoal. So we worked our forests for charcoal to make charcoal as a, as a fuel, essentially. So a lot of these these woods have been coppiced regularly, and then um, it's, it got a little bit abandoned as labour became really really expensive, and it was cheaper to to grow you know fast growing conifers in. Sweden, Siberia, Russia, and get them to chop them down instead. So coppicing got a, abandoned a little bit at the end of the Second World War, as also labour disappeared, because unfortunately we lost a lot of people. Um, so I've got trees that, for example, that they've got to be at least a 1,000 years old because the stump at the base, the diameter, is massive. But it stops and then it's multi-stemmed. So that multi-stems was probably last coppiced about 100 years ago. And before that, you know, you've got 900 years then of regular coppicing. So that's, you know, sometimes coppicing is done every 10 years. If you want thin poles for hurdles or for fencing or for wattle and daub houses, we used to cake them in mud, or whether you leave them for 25 years till they're thick stems and they're firewood, or whether they are, you know, 50, 100 years and you want to plank them for timber. Um, So lots of different uses. And you don't know in the past, I've got trees that will last coppiced or pollarded maybe 200 years ago and they're, they're huge and other trees that we coppiced you know 
two years ago and they're already sending up lots of little shoots and it all depends on the market and what you're what you're using them for so i don't know whether they go on forever there's got to be a point where they just go that's enough i'll stop it <laughs> um or they, they they can just go yep give me the soil i'm going to drop those leaves the worms and the you know nematodes are going to turn that back into soil i'm going to soak up that that, that lovely soily juice and then mm. i'm going to keep on going again again <laughs> <laughs> lovely soily juice that is a new phrase for the podcast i like so that vivid. a lot <laughs> So, so, <laughs> so in in some kind of fancy world where I've won the lottery and I've bought myself a little plot of land, how do I decide what trees are right for my space? Uh, what's been grown there in the past? So um, look in your neighbouring hedge in your local nearby woodland and work out whether it's ancient or not. There's there's maps you can look on the government website, something called Magic Map, and they have a whole database and they can tell you whether. Uh, that woodland is ancient whether there's a triple si whether there's you know all sorts of interesting things there so have a look well your nearest ancient woodland and then go and look at the species in that but you know if you've got native you, you can't go wrong with native broadleaf there are some also native conifers as well we've got yew we've got uh scots pine and we've also got juniper so there's three native conifers and you know there's there's our honorary natives the chestnuts horse chestnut and sweet chestnut both introduced some by the Romans, some by the Normans, sycamore. Sycamore is also an honor, becoming an honorary native. Um, there's quite a lot of species that we, yeah, we've evolved over our lifetime with that we think are, are native, but they're not actually. So yeah, things like the walnuts, the chestnuts and the sycamores have, have been brought in by man, but they've been here for four, eight, 2,000 years so at some point you just got to go hey welcome to the party <laughs> uh, so I would it never blows have my thought mind. about yeah. I, I, think, I think because of the kind of British uh, fascination with conkers I'd always just assumed that chestnut and horse chestnut trees were part of like a staple part of our landscape because they've become yeah. such a big part of our kind of historic culture yeah and chestnuts roasting on an open fire exactly I don't yeah, know what but... I'd do without that at Christmas <laughs> I know, yeah, they're introduced, um, brought in for food, for fodder, you know, horse chestnuts probably for, probably for, probably Romans and their pigs, sweet chestnuts, so probably the, 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 the people could actually eat them themselves, so I even heard the other day, right, that an English elm, now when we were in the woods, I showed you a witch elm, that was the, the, the leaf at the base that doesn't meet at the same point, mm. it's asymmetrical, there's an English elm, which also suffered from Dutch elm disease, English elm, not even English, introduced oh we've been lied to we've been lied to all this time we've been greenwashed will it never end (laughs) probably yeah so there's a lot of species that we 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 are now on honorary natives you know much like there's quite a few plants and you know some of the currants i think are also honorary native plants to some degree so yeah if you want to plant a, a, a woodland and you want to know what to plant look in your local woodland and what's there you can also look on some fantastic maps as well so um, well, I think the National Biodiversity Network will show you the species that have been recorded there. And there's all sorts of mapping tools at Forestry Commission who you usually have to ask permission. So over two hectares, you've got to get permission to plant it. So you go to Forestry Commission and you can say, is this the right area to plant? Is this OK? But under two hectares, you can just kind of crack on with it. But um, yeah, you, I mean, just have a look, ask on the Woodland Trust website. We've got native species of trees that are available there and um, and a lot of these mapping tools will tell you what's been there, what's grown there in the past and is no longer there and what's been there all along. So, yeah, that's the tip. There we go. Yeah. Well, OK, so this is a, here's a question. In preparation for when I win the lottery and have my many acres and once I've checked with Forestry Commission that I can plant them all up into woodland, um, I have some oak oh, saplings that are probably only a couple of inches tall from which I have been growing in my garden. Um, and... One of the fun things about Lloyd and I doing this podcast is a lot of people will ask us questions assuming that we're experts and that we have really sound <laughs> advice. And one thing that I have noticed that's come up quite a lot of times is people have been asking me, listen, I'm growing tiny small trees because I want to participate in this actually being useful uh, in terms of climate change. I'm growing lots of small trees. I don't have plant uh, space to plant them. Can I sneak out under cover of darkness and just plant them somewhere where I feel that they should be and where they can grow. And that can be like a kind of secret guerrilla mission style of planting to do something useful. 
is this actually useful or, 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 or do we just get in the way when we try and do that? And I would assume that most of the answer is, please be sensible and maybe don't do this. I mean, first rule, no, that's not, it's not helpful. If someone, because if someone might decide to put it in your, in your back lawn that, you know, you've been trying to turn into a wildflower meadow all this time. If someone did that in your back garden, you'd be like, hey, you just dug up my ground mm. and put a tree in and I didn't ask you to put it there. And if you're a farmer or a park owner or a council or, a, you know, National Trust or Woodland Trust or Prince Charles, who owns a lot of land, then he might go, I didn't ask you to do that. That's not, not what I wanted for it. So, no, the first answer is no, you can't do that. You've got to find out and get permission from the landowner. Same as if you want to take something from it, you know, if you want to forage, should really have always permission from the landowner. But uh, now there are a million ways you can find the right person in your local community to plant that tree. So we get asked a lot of, a lot of that question as well. I get, I get a lot of emails saying, like, I've been growing up these acorns or these, these, these beech saplings from seed collected in that wood. Can I go and plant it in the wood? First answer is no, because uh, of tree disease. So it could have been sat in your garden next to a you know garden centre bought rhododendron that's just come in from Holland, and then that came off of the a boat from you know Asia for all we know, and that could pass on an insect or a disease that is uh, problematic and will spread into the native ancient woodland through through that oak sapling. So yeah, that's the danger. So we have something in 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 the woodland trust called UK. Uh, ISG UK and Ireland sourced and grown so every sapling we plant out in our woodland has to also be certified as UK sourced and grown to make sure we don't introduce species uh, that shouldn't be there or diseases that shouldn't be there because they can transfer on plants so if you if you want to plant those oak saplings out somewhere chat to your chat to your local community groups your local friends of groups your park friends of parks groups um, chat to your local council, have a chat with a local um, you know, wildlife officer in the council or chat to your local wildlife trust and go, look, have you got anywhere where this could be good? Um, they might say yes, because if you're FSC certified, then you can't basically because you know you, we have to make sure they are UK sourced and going in. It's got its passport. They have plant passports, mm. tiny little books that say, <laughs> I am UK sourced and grown. This is, this is where it's grown. That's where the seed's from. But if you plant that oak sapling out in the wrong place, you might be sticking it in the middle of this wonderful wildflower meadow, of which we have also lost 97% of wildflower meadows since the Second World War. And that could be, you know, that last remaining fragment of beautiful orchid grassland and you stick a tree in it and it's going to be shaded and destroy it. So the, the, the answer, unfortunately, is probably no. But there are a million people who would love that sapling in the right place who, you know, might want to go and save them money, going to buy it in a nursery and if they're going to go and stick it in their park or on their allotment then yeah perfect i think that question is born answer, out of you. like people's yeah it is that's is a great thank you very much for giving me a very sensible answer to give people i would very quickly like to book in that by saying that um i don't get asked that many questions about these things so people must have picked up by now that i actually am not an expert but they just go straight to hang you on, instead hang on <laughs> can we just set the record straight you cannot say that yeah. you're not an expert we forgot to make this announcement at the top of the episodes, but you're now Dr. Hopkins, which makes you a Whoa. certified expert. So can we just, Joe, join me. Can we just clap? Congratulations. I swear, I, I, I was not fishing for that. <laughs> no, wow. but I, I was going to give it to you anyway and then got distracted by chat of trees. So before you try and shoehorn me in as the expert, which I'm most certainly not, you have a proper piece of paper that says that you actually are. So You're the only expert here, Lloyd, literally. You outrank uh, us. I mean, we're just enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm an expert in, but we'll... <laughs> going going back to sneaking off and planting trees i think and i think the reason lloyd that we do get asked lots of questions is because it's it's born out of a fear of well it's born out of eco anxiety isn't it and people wanting to feel like they can do something positive and make a useful change even if they're not massive landowners or have loads of money to give to charity or support causes you know which most of us aren't um so (laughs) speak for yourself well you've been hiding that from me very well then your um your <laughs> massive country estate um so uh, what other ways are there that people can get involved without sneaking off and trying to grow their own trees and plant their own trees i would have i would have guessed volunteering and helping out with tree plantations that are already established but you know donating their time 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have woodland creation champions who help out people in tree planting, literally in that thing. So they'll they'll be directed to the local community groups who are planting. So you can actually apply for free trees. So if you were part of a community group or a school, the Woodland Trust give away free trees. And there is there is there's literally no there's no um, what's the word? There's no uh, no catch. There's no clauses. No catch. That's the one. There's no catch. There's no catch. We just give them away. You just have oh, to be yeah. from a school or community group and uh, apply on our website for free trees. That's amazing. Um, how, how, how fully formed do they arrive? Like on the back of a massive truck? Or no. like... <laughs> <laughs> I've got your delivery for you. They've got blue <laughs> or red flat. passports. <laughs> they've, got, um, they, they've got their own little UK ISG passports and they are probably, I reckon, 30 centimetre whips. So they are two to three years old and they arrive in a little box and you can, uh, I think you can get either like 20 or 480 and you can get hedgerow packs or you can get woodland packs, all sorts of different things. And that's um, available to any school or community group. Just have to have permission from a landowner to where you're going to put them. And um, we give away millions, give away millions every year. So that's one way you can volunteer with the Woodland Trust or you can volunteer with loads of different organisations. I know Extinction Rebellion doing loads of cool stuff. Every friends of group, I'm sure, will have someone who leads on biodiversity and tree planting and working out where in their local community, whether it's a roundabout or a church ground or a school uh, playing field where they might be able to fit in a few extra trees. Or if you're a farmer, we actually... um, we give away free trees and subsidised tree planting to farmers and landowners as well. So you can get up to about 80% funding um, to help plant trees on your land. And the government have just launched literally about a week ago new grant systems to enable you to um, get paid. You actually get paid to plant trees on your land now. But So yeah, so loads weird. of different ways. We just all need land, don't we? I, I You know, we, we rent a little bit off of a a friend but we're talking enough for a vegetable plot and a polytunnel but we all just need to divvy out what those very rich landowners all have amongst them so we can all do our little bit sounds like you're leading the revolution there oh there's a chap who is what's his name uh guy shrubsole oh, who owns and Nick England. Hayes. yeah 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 some good stuff there where they are literally looking at who got given all that land by henry the eighth and you know why we should all have a have a, a little piece. Although he did make an interesting fact. If you divvied it out amongst everyone in Britain, right, we'd have just slightly less than an acre each. Now, I don't need any more than an acre, oh. but that's not actually well, that much. I don't an know acre, what I was expecting. Half a, foot, but half a football pitch. An acre, I'd be happy with an acre. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, me too. Well, that, that, is, that is absolutely mad. Yeah, so so a guy and Nick, I mean, I, I think they're... We're probably going to try and get them on the podcast at some point. Spoiler alert! Um, but yeah, they do some. They've done some amazing work looking at like trespassing laws and the ridiculous uh, ways that we are and aren't allowed to access nature. And like you said, like the ownership of like the one percent owning eighty percent of the UK, and and it's just absolutely nuts. But yeah, really yeah. interesting. But that's but there's some there's some really cool farmers doing some great projects at the moment. So because of those. Um, woodland creation grants it's given farmers the freedom and the ability to think a bit differently in terms of what their land is best suited for and uh you know that that could be people planting for you know bio crops or something but actually agroforestry is coming back big time so that is um that is absorbing trees back into the landscape to help your farm grow that's really interesting well joe thank you so much for answering all of our you know some slightly nonsensical some maybe sensible questions about trees the final one being from me next time you're up and you need tree planting volunteers around bristol and bath can you let me know i will do yeah and what's your least favorite type of tree my least favorite tree Whoa, <laughs> the podcast so nicely we've gone full circle do you know what there's a rabinia which is um it's called the black locust i think it's north american originally but it's become a bit of an invasive species and it's got massive, massive thorns on it. I mean, like, not like a like a hawthorn or blackthorn thorn that you think would be bad. This is to, like, stop elephants, lions and giraffe. Well, no, North America can't be that. Got to be other big organisms, bison probably, from, from eating it. And the thorns, literally, they could they could puncture a lung, man. They're huge. And there's, oh. there's, there's about five of them that have shot up, suckered from a big tree next to a gateway that I keep going to in one of my woods. And every time when I open the gate... I get snagged by one of these big thorns and I'm like, okay, no, 
false. I think the yeah, it's nightmare uh, the, trees. R- that I, that's my least favourite these days. Oh, but it's probably Steve. lovely. North America is probably a great tree. Does it? Stupid Rubinia. Stupid. I knew it. I knew it. Oh, brilliant. Well, Joe, thanks so much. How can people me, find out more about you if you want them to find out more about you, but also about the Woodland Trust? Uh, woodlandtrust.org.uk is the best place. Um, they'll probably see my face all over some um, work we're doing at the moment to do with uh, trying to you know, do tree planting and biodegradable tree guards as well. So, so yeah, have a look on woodlandtrust.org.uk. I'm on Instagram under Joe Middleton somewhere. Uh, you can see my face doing stupid wildlife stuff. But yeah, look up the woodlandtrust.org.uk. And there's a couple of bits on YouTube. I'm minding your video, Emma. That brilliant video. Where you're I was going to say, you, you might also see Emma's face. Yeah. Floating yeah. around. Yeah. You, you get to see me asking Joe questions, you know, a format you might not be familiar with. But um... If you like questions, then oh boy. <laughs> oh, you can actually see us in our, in our natural environment, out in, out in the woods. That was a great film, actually, we did a couple of weeks ago, all about some projects we're doing in, in our ancient woodland and woodland creation next to it. That was with Festival of Nature. That was really, really fun. So, we, yeah, we had a look at ancient woodlands and, and tree plantations, and it was just amazing. And I got five ticks that day, so I just want to raise awareness. Oh. Everyone wear long trousers when hanging out in an ancient woodland. I don't care what it looks like. Tuck your socks into your trousers and do a tick check because they're pretty nasty. Mm. You don't want them. For a moment, I thought you've been like my... ticks like approval. And I was like, oh, she had a really good day. It's the wrong yeah. kind of approval, <laughs> yeah. Ticks of approval. <laughs> citronella. Cover yourself in citronella. That's supposed to be really good for it as well. They don't, they don't, apparently uh, they, they don't like the smell of citronella. Oh, well, next time you see me, you'll, you'll smell me before <laughs> I come, really. But um, that's, well, that's my public service announcement then for the, for the episode. But yeah, so thank you so much. Uh, you can find For What It's Earth on all social media, pretty much. Everywhere. Uh, and you can drop us a nice little email at forwardatsearthpod at gmail.com if you want to have a chat, suggest any guests or any, uh, any topics. We've actually got a, good, a really good list of topics coming up that people have suggested. We do. And um, as always, uh, everything we've said, all our views, etc., etc., are our own and not that of our respective employers. Great. Well, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.